0: All right. Thank you, music team. Good evening, church. Very good evening to everyone. Now, in case you're just joining us for the first time, so now we are doing a very short sermon series uh, on the theology of healing. So last week was session number one. Today is session number two. So last week I established the biblical foundation that Jesus reverses all the curses that were pronounced in the Garden of Eden. We also saw last week how diseases and death and decay and everything that is evil came through one man, that is Adam. But healing and life came through another man, that is Jesus Christ. Adam, the name comes from the Hebrew word Adama, the ground. So Adam is made from the ground, but Jesus is uncreated. He is from heaven. So one brought death, the other brought life. And we must really settle it in our hearts and minds that what Jesus has done for us is more than enough, as we have just sung, more than sufficient and truly final. What Jesus has done on the cross has paid the full price of redemption. We need to be very clear on this. And mustn't allow our experiences, especially the bad ones, to determine the reality or the truth of God's Word. Just because we haven't experienced it, doesn't mean it is not true. We must believe healing is God's will as much as it is God's will for resurrection, even though most of us, I would think, if not all of us, have never seen someone resurrected from the dead. But we believe that there is the resurrection in the life to come. Now, when it comes to this topic of uh, goodness of God and healing, I was thinking that most of us have no qualms believing that God is good. right? But sometimes there's this, still this niggling thought lingering at the back of our mind. Is it truly so that God is good, especially when we're going through difficult times? And so my endeavor today is really to try to purify our minds even further. If you ever try to purify a substance, whether silver or gold or something or solution, you know that initially the pure, impurities are easy to be surfaced. But the last 5 to 10% is when it's most difficult. And that's when you really got to put in a lot more effort to ensure there is purification. And so we are going to do that today. Our task is really to drill deep to that final, maybe 5 to 10% of us where we have some doubts. For example, a very common question that people wrestle with is this. What if God sent the disease in the first place? <laughs> Am I going to contradict God's will if I seek and I pray for healing? And so we want to address really this very practical question. And I hope by the end of this sermon, you will realize that the opposite really is true. Number one, God doesn't send the disease or the decay. They are just natural effects of a fallen world. Number two, in fact, each time God acts, it is really to reverse the effects of sin and death because God is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And when God doesn't act, then we are left to the natural consequences of our sin and death and so on and so forth. And most importantly, I pray for all of us, we'll be willing to change our minds for who God really is. He is not a God against us, as we have just sung also, but He is a God for us. And we need to stop doubting and negating what God has done and God wants to do. We mustn't put God in a box of our own creation. So my aim last sermon was really to present that God's work is complete and final on the cross. My aim today is to present that God's nature is always good, <clears throat> just that we don't fully understand it. And unless we are fully convinced of the goodness of God, we will always struggle with this area of healing. Should we pray for healing for ourselves, or others or not? So I pray that this purification process, the Holy Spirit will reveal His truths to all of us this evening. So let's read an important Bible passage about healing and how we mustn't allow our presuppositions to doubt or even negate God's work. John chapter 9. As Jesus went along, He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned this man? or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, he made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. And this word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So I'm going to jump some verses you can follow along in the Pew Bibles or in your own handphones. We jump to verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now on the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But the others asked, But how can a sinner perform such signs? And so they were divided. Verse 18, They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son. The parents answered, We know he was born blind. But now how he can see now? Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And that is why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, We know that this man Jesus was a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Don't refute what the realities, right? That's what he's saying. And then they continue this conversation Jump to verse 30. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Very exciting episode. Come let us pray. Holy Spirit, I depend on you. We all depend on you. Guide us into your truth. Set us free truly by your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this narrative in John 9 reveals the boxes that we human beings we like to put God or our theologies in. And the first box, like the disciples, we wrongly assume that sickness is a direct result of someone's sin. This is the wrong box of, I call it, the consequences we expect. And Jesus' answer is very straightforward. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Neither this man nor his parents sinned that he was born blind. You know, maybe you came from other religious background before you became a Christian. You may hear of things like karma, or the Chinese say pao ing, you know, retribution. So we have this thinking, oh, because of this, a, eh, therefore I'm suffering the consequence. Now this is not a biblical concept, right? Jesus teaches very clearly here, neither this man nor his parents sin, but this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is not saying that this man is completely sinless what Jesus is trying to say is there is no direct correlation. Not that you do something wrong, straight away you cannot zap one's consequence. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not this direct. And so this means in practical terms, we don't go around telling people, oh yeah, you have this sickness because you have sinned. Oh, actually you think you put yourself in the shoes of those who are sick. You are already weak, discouraged by your illness. Imagine some Christian, so-called Christian comes along and tells you, Oh, you have sinned, that's why you are sick. It discourages you even further, right? So let's not do that. We don't want to say you committed this sin or that sin, therefore you are stricken with this illness. As I have taught in my last sermon, the source of sickness really is traced back to the original act of disobedience, and the original act of disobedience really can also be seen as the devil's work. Yes, Adam and Eve fell into temptation, they sin, but on the other side, it is the work of the evil one. Jesus says in verse 4, As long as it is day, we must do the works of Him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And so Jesus is implying that we don't always get the opportunity to do God's work. In this case, Jesus was most likely referring to His dark hour of crucifixion when He's on the cross. There won't be healing immediately. Nonetheless, Jesus' statement really reveals the very heart of God. And that is God's work, God's desire is to bring light into our darkened world. On the contrary, Satan's work and desire is to snuff out the light of God. But Jesus is fully committed to do the way of the Father as we have seen earlier in John's Gospel. That's why he says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of Him who sent me. First John chapter 3, verses 7-8 to eight says this, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. In other words, if you are truly righteous on the inside, outwardly you will live a righteous life. So the inward and outward really must align. And then verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then let's read the last part of this verse together. One, two, three. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. It is very clear, Jesus teaches, the reason the Son of God Jesus appeared is to destroy the the devil's work. So from John's point of view, the Apostle John's point of view, there are really only two protagonists working in our world. One is God, the other is the devil. In every situation, we are given a choice. We either join God in his work or we succumb to the devil and do his schemes. Sin and all its terrible effects really, including blindness, sicknesses, disaster, decay, everything are to be seen as the devil's work. To be absolutely clear, we mustn't think that God set up this situation that he made someone blind from birth so that he can show off. If God was like that, uh, he will be the worst of all, the most perverse of all beings. They will make him extremely sadistic, narcissistic. He paid the problem so he can come in and save the day. That will be the worst ever. I hope you remember, I showed you also last week, that God cannot be the source, the author of evil and temptation. All the problems we face in our world today are really the downstream effects of a sinful, fallen world and the result of the devil's work. Is that clear? Yes, we must accept this reality. Is that clear? (laughs) Right? Very important. So, granted that, Pastor Anthony, you say God didn't set up this situation in John 9, but what about some other Old Testament passages where God is explicitly stated to have sent disasters? And this is where some of us struggle, wrongly thinking that if God sent the sickness or He sent the disaster, it will be against God's will to pray against it. I must confess, this is the area I struggled with the most when I first pursued this ministry of healing many years ago. I have no problem seeing that Jesus is the perfect representation of God and if Jesus came to heal, God wants to heal. Nobody can represent God better than Jesus and Jesus demonstrated healing. So I know God's will and desire is for healing. And if you have simple faith like that, God bless you. You just accept it. Yes, Jesus wants to heal. Unfortunately for me, God also made me with a critical mind. I have read some Old Testament passages. I need to make sense of the Old Testament. So allow me to share with you my own journey, how I reconcile the issue, the text where, for example, God is explicitly stated to have sent disasters. I give you the best example, Isaiah 45 verse 7. I formed the light. And create darkness, I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Ah, uh, how? <laughs> this is the clearest verse of all. So if you can wrestle with this verse, I think the rest can also be aligned in similar fashion. How do we make sense of a verse like this? Clearly, darkness, disaster is attributed. God says, I do these things. Or how do we make sense of other Old Testament narratives? For example, why would a loving God command the Israelites to exterminate the Canaanites? Why would a loving God sanction war? And in all these passages, it's not the devil giving the command. It is clear that God is the one speaking. To be fair, these questions have been raised long ago. In trying to solve this theological challenge, a person by the name of Marcion, who lived in the 2nd century AD, his solution was throw away the entire Old Testament. <laughs> because the Old Testament pictured a God who is vengeful, angry, you know, petty. New Testament is a compassionate, gracious God. He cannot see how the two are together. So his solution, let's throw away the Old Testament. Thankfully, the other church fathers did not see him, see the scriptures like he did. They didn't put God in the wrong box, which is what the box I call the God I expect. Marcion had put God in the wrong box thinking that God, in his view, can only be good and kind. Marcion's view of God doesn't take into account that God is also a God of justice, righteousness, and that he's holy. And as a holy, righteous, and just God, it is God's duty to judge and punish sin and evil doers. The difference, the big difference is that Jesus has taken on the punishment and the wrath of God. It's not that God forgives without anything. No, the solution is found in Jesus Christ. As we have seen here in John 9, some of the Pharisees had also put God in a box. In their view, God cannot violate his own commandment to keep the Sabbath. And so some of them were insistent, you know, that Jesus could not have come from God because in their theological box, performing an act of healing on a Sabbath is against the law that God gave. The God they expected was a God who would do nothing on a Sabbath because God's supposed to rest to stop doing things. But Jesus taught that the essence of Sabbath, the true principle of Sabbath is freedom. If you recall when the Sabbath was commanded and instituted, it was when Moses had led the people out of Egypt. The people had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years and as slaves, they never knew a single day of rest. They were always made to work. But now God has set them free and so God gave them the Sabbath as a sign. Hey, you are no longer slaves in Egypt. You are free. And since you are free, you have one day to rest. Six days you can work, but one day take time to rest, to enjoy the freedom that you are free people. And so when Jesus healed the blind man on the Sabbath, he was demonstrating, he was practicing the true essence of the Sabbath, which is to set the blind man free from the work of the evil one. He set the blind man free from the work of the evil one. To show you another passage that Satan is the one doing all these works of evil and sicknesses, Luke chapter 10, verses 10 to 16. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not straighten up at all. So, physically, we see our eyes oh, this woman may be older, cannot bend up, cannot straighten up, right? But Jesus says, she had been crippled by her spirit. What we see in our physical eyes is limited. And so Jesus saw her. He called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straight up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the store and lead it out to give it water? Men should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, and you see what Jesus says, whom Satan has bound, kept bound for 18 long years, shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? The essence of Sabbath is not doing nothing. For God is still working even on the Sabbath. John chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And so he's saying that Sabbath is not about doing nothing. Even God continues to work, and what the Father does, the Son also does. And then for this reason, they tried all the more to kill Jesus, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, But he was calling God, his own father, making himself equal with God. So you see, right, that God's intention of the Sabbath is to set people free. And that's God's nature, to always set us free, to break the work of the evil one. So let's come back then to our Isaiah 45 passage. As with all Bible passages, we need to understand that context is everything. Context is everything. And when it comes to context, there are three important contexts we need to bear in mind as whenever we read the Word of God. Number one, we need to read the immediate literary context. What are the verses in front you know, and behind surrounding this verse? It's important to know that. Second is the past historical context. What do we know about these figures, these characters? What can we find out that maybe sets the stage so we can better understand where they're coming from? And then number three, we need to bear in mind the context of the entire book. In the book of Isaiah, for example, or the book, and the entire Bible. We need to bear in mind all these contexts when we study a scripture passage. And so in Isaiah 45, the immediate context is this. God has anointed a foreign king called Cyrus to deliver his people to be his chosen instrument. In the Old Testament, a lot of people were anointed. Kings were anointed. Prophets, priests, they were all anointed. And the word in the Hebrew for anointing is meshiach which where we get the word Messiah. To be a Messiah means not Savior. In the Old Testament, understanding is simply to be anointed. We can say maybe small letter M, not capital letter M. But here, God is saying, Cyrus, you, foreign king, you are anointed. Now that is radical because in the Jewish mindset, only the Jews are possibly anointed, but not a foreign king. And so that really gives us a clue that this passage needs to be read differently from your usual understanding. The historical context is this. Cyrus is really an astute politician and a very smart person. And so whenever he conquered kingdoms, he will make it a practice to publicly worship the gods of that nation, the kingdom that he conquered. He will go to the temple and worship their god. He did this to win the hearts of his subjects, to keep down revolt. So the people would say, wow, this Cyrus is very good. Huh? He worship our God like us. So he won favour with the people. One scholar even went so far to suggest that Isaiah 45 was written as a political tool to facilitate the local acceptance of a foreign ruler. In other words, to paint Cyrus in such a good light. Oh, Cyrus is chosen by God, therefore accept him. I probably won't go so far as that. But I think it's quite clear, at least we can make a reasonable guess, that Cyrus worshipped many gods. And so, in light of this, Isaiah 45 is really written to Cyrus to inform him that he should not think to himself that he is the one who made all the conquests. Rather, he needs to acknowledge that it is God who is sovereign and chose him to be his instrument. In the ancient world, almost every event is attributed to some deity. They are fertility gods. Ring gods, sun gods, gods for everything that happens in our world, there is a God. But here, Isaiah 45, uh, Cyrus is informed, look, there is no other God except Yahweh alone. You think there are so many gods out there? But I'm telling you, you are anointed by the one true God. And so the word disaster, darkness, had to be attributed to God to seal this one point that there is no other sovereign God except Yahweh alone. You can read the entire chapter of uh, chapter 45 for yourselves. Turn your own Bibles, you can read it for yourselves. The same message is repeated over and over again. There is only one God. There is no other God like Yahweh. And then when it comes to the context of the entire Bible, God has many names Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, Jehovah Shalom, the God who is peace, Jehovah Rapha, Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. But never once has God ever been called the God of disaster. Okay, he's never been called the God of destroyer or disaster, no. And so that's important for all of us to remember. While there are scripture passages that seem to indicate that God sent disasters or even sicknesses, that is really not the whole context of the Bible. And when we fail to read the Bible in its entire context, I can see why we misunderstand and we attribute darkness and even disaster to God. I hope I've shown you otherwise. And when it comes to God's command to show no mercy to the Canaanites, two things we must bear in mind, especially for the young adults in our midst. Number one, genocide is a modern construct. We cannot impose our modern understanding into an ancient world which has completely different values and culture. And second, more importantly, we really have little idea of what kind of evil the Canaanites were capable of. So historians tell us that the Canaanites practiced Molech like worship Molech is their god, so-called, their protecting father figure. And images of Molech were made of bronze. And these outstretched arms were heated to be really hot by the fire, to be hot and red hot. What they will do will be to place living children into the hands of these idols while they are burning hot. Either to die there or they'll be so hot crying and they roll down into the fire pit below. Some sources even indicate a child might be passed through the fire prior to the actual sacrifice in order to purify or even baptize the child first. Can you imagine that? Burning babies to an idol. And that's why God prohibited the Israelites from worshipping Molech. Leviticus 20 verses 2 to 5 says, "'Say to the Israelites, any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death.' The members of the community are to stone him, so and so forth. And the reason is very simple. God is the defender of the weak. Who are the weakest? Babies. Who's going to defend them? If these people are going to sacrifice innocent children to this Molech, I must put an end to this evil practice. It seems like it's painful. I have to destroy entire people. But if I don't do this, they will continue to to sacrifice generation after generation of children to the evil one. And so God had to put an end to evil at some point. That is the nature of God. He has to judge at some point. So you can read this passage with tinted lenses. You can think to yourself, oh, God commanded stoning. But when I read the same passage, I read and I know God defends the weak. God is determined to protect children and He will put an end to wrongdoers. So let me summarise this portion. Many times in our attempt to you know, justify ourselves or justify our theologies, our experience, like Job's wife, we can make the mistake of charging God with evil. Job was suffering. His wife said, just curse God. like God is responsible for all this evil. But Job said, no. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the scripture records very clearly, Job did not charge God with evil. So let's not do that as well. Let's not charge God with evil. Let us also not become like the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees at least. Let us not negate the work of God, what God wants to do, because it doesn't fit into our theological boxes. Some of the Pharisees couldn't believe that Jesus healed the blind man, but they kept insisting that Jesus was a sinner. So let's not do that as well. They have put God in this God I expect box. I recognize that many people also have objections to believe in God because they have their own boxes of who God is supposed to be. Like Marcion, they have problems seeing a God who is both loving and holy. They think, e, how can a loving God you know, punish? But if God is only holy, He is not loving. We have this inability in our finite minds to understand and hold attention. But we need to recognize just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. And for the Bible... It consistently paints the picture of a God we don't expect. It paints pictures of even our heroes. David is actually a fallen human being. He's full of scandals. No human being will ever write a Bible like that. For me, that's all the more truer that the Bible is so true because it paints a picture of us that we don't like. (laughs) It paints a picture of God we don't expect. And then there are others who negate God's work and desire to heal by claiming that certain preachers or evangelists who emphasize healing, they are pushing too much for an over-realized eschatology or they're preaching a health and wealth gospel just because for them there's something wrong, means everything is wrong, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. They say that ultimate healing can only be achieved when Jesus comes again. For me, that's another box, trying to limit what God can do or should do or will do. Just because we don't understand, just because we have not experienced God's goodness fully, let's not try to put God in the box, but let's come back to the Word of God, which really describes for us who God really is. Of course, I'm naturally aware that I may be in this same box. I also may have the God I expect box for myself. So please check the Bibles for yourself. Be like the Bivian Christians who daily check what Apostle Paul taught. See for yourself, study for yourselves, whether you will come to the same conclusion I did that sickness are the natural result of a fallen world, the work of the evil one. God's work is to destroy the works of the evil one. And yes, by the way, God will discipline us, but not through sicknesses. Yes, God will discipline us in His love, in His holy love, but not through the affliction of sicknesses. And I propose that the reason some of us have distorted images of God is because we have been on the receiving end of very unfair, very cruel discipline. Our parents treated us unfairly, for example, and so we have this wrong image and we project it onto God. God is also unfair and cruel. So that's how I wrestle with this issue. And if there's any major difference between the Old Testament, it's really this. Jesus has borne God's punishment and wrath on our behalf on the cross. In the Old Testament, God more often than not allowed people to reap the consequences of their actions in the New Testament, God more often than not demonstrated grace. But actually, the character and nature of God is consistent in both testaments. He is the same God in both. The big difference, as I mentioned, the transition point is Jesus bearing the curse, the punishment. Take Acts chapter 5 in the New Testament, for example. Chapter 5, the very familiar account of Ananias and Sapphira. What happened to them when they tried to deceive the Holy Spirit? Were they given grace? No, they were struck down immediately. And so, even in the New Testament, there are issues like that we need to wrestle with. So, I hope also it is clear by now that God does not have multiple personality disorder, okay? He's not one, on one hand, oh, very holy, and then the other, oh, very loving. He does not switch sides like that. God is not like that. Our minds cannot understand it, but God is not like that at all. He's 100% holy, 100% love. And again, if we cannot wrap it, our minds around it, it doesn't mean that it's untrue and we mustn't allow our theologies to really box God in. So we must really not be double-minded. If you want to receive God's healing or you want to minister God's healing, we cannot afford to be double-minded. We must settle really deep in our hearts and minds that the character and nature of God is good, that He is good. And yet even if and when healing doesn't occur, which we will cover in two weeks' time, we must remember that God has already given us the best gift of all. Jesus, the tree of life, has already been given. Let me now refer to Exodus 15. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. And there the Lord issued a ruling and a destruction for them and put them to the test. It was really a test of their faith in God. But of course, they felt like they were grumbling. They didn't trust God sufficiently. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes, if you pay attention to His commands and keep all His decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. On superficial reading, again, I won't blame anyone if you think that God sends the diseases, right? Because God clearly states, I brought the diseases on the Egyptians. But what is most intriguing in this incident is that this is the first time that God revealed His divine name, the Lord who heals you, Jehovah Rapha. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals you. If you delete this last phrase, our human logic will stand. Pay attention to God's commands, keep His decrees, and I will not be afflicted with sicknesses. Right? That is the logic of the passage. So why did God speak and reveal Himself as the Lord who heals us? I want to humbly propose to all of us that revealing Himself as the Lord who heals us, completely changes the texture, the tone of this passage. You look at the account again, the Israelites came to a place where the water was bitter, undrinkable, and the Lord showed to Moses a piece of wood. Moses threw that wood in, and the wood, you know, purified the water. The water became drinkable, in fact, sweet. And so, friends, that piece of wood is a prophetic picture of pointing towards Jesus and the cross. It is Jesus' work on the cross, the wood, that will turn every bitter situation around into something positive. Only Jesus can turn the negative into something positive. Notice also God doesn't say, I am the Lord who healed the water. (laughs) He says, I am the Lord who heals you. Many times we only focus on external stuff, external circumstances, but God is interested in both what's happening inside as well as what's outside. We shouldn't make a dichotomy, which is more important. God is interested in healing both. But of course, as you see in this passage, I am the Lord who heals you. Now the problem is this, the Israelites, as many preachers have said before, they were taken out of Egypt, but Egypt has not been taken out of them. They still didn't believe that God is the sovereign God. In 400 years of slavery, I don't blame them. They would probably think to themselves, ah, God is dead lah. That's why we suffer for 400 years. And that's the healing that they really needed, a renewing of their mind to see that God is the deliverer, is the saviour, he's the sovereign one. He has seen these 400 years of slavery, he has heard our cries, and now he intervenes. And that's why he needs to heal the Israelites of their wrong belief, their hardened hearts. Unfortunately, they were influenced in their hearts by like Pharaoh. If Pharaoh didn't harden his heart... Do we have to have all templates? Probably not. Unfortunately, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He would not let his people go. And so what we really need is a different perspective. Not to grumble against God, but to recognize that if not for God's grace, if God had not saved us, had not put a protection, hedge of protection around us, we would have been dead long ago. In the account of the templates, it was very clear. The land of Egypt were awe stricken. But God put a hedge of protection around the Israelites' camp. Everything that happened there didn't happen to the Israelites because God protected them. Not that God sent it, but the diseases and disasters. Although it is clear that God is sovereign, but God was the one who protected and healed the Israelites. And so that's important for us to remember that God is not the one who threatens us, but God is the one who protects us. The larger narrative of the book of Exodus and the Old Testament is this, God wants always to form a people for Himself, His treasured possession. He wants a special possession. But the people in Israel have been so enslaved, so blind, so hardened, that the only way they can become God's people is if God steps in to heal their hearts, to heal their minds, and to set them free. And so I hope we recognize that diseases, then, are not a sign of God's judgment, that God is punishing us for our sin but rather an opportunity for God to demonstrate His glory as He once demonstrated when He delivered the Israelites from Egypt. It is a call for us, a reminder, a sign for us to look to God for healing. Because each time someone is healed, it is really a reaffirmation and a declaration. There is no other God but Yahweh alone. He alone is Jehovah Rapha. And once you understand this principle, When you reread John chapter 9, I hope you can see the alignment. Neither the man nor his parents sinned that he was born blind. It is the work of the evil one from the very beginning and they are suffering the consequence of that downstream effect. But diseases really are an opportunity for God to display his glory, to display his work, so that when healing occurs, as this blind man eventually testifies, there is no other God but Yahweh alone. And John chapter 9 is very intentional. At the end of the day, the blind man says, Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Because there is no other one who can heal except God alone. So John the Apostle was really good in weaving how this episode shows us that Jesus is Yahweh. Thank you everyone for your patience. Please give yourselves a round of applause. I know today's sermon is a lot cheaper than usual. Uh, Thank you very much for being patient. So let me summarize. Number one, God doesn't send diseases, they are the natural effects of a fallen world. But in the midst of this fallen world, let's remember that God is still sovereign. He sees the disasters, He sees the diseases. It doesn't mean that God does not care about us, but He is still sovereign. We do not know everything. We were entrusted to the mystery of God. That's week, two weeks' time. Number two, each time God acts, it reverses the effects of sin and death. His name is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And when God doesn't act, that's when we are left to the natural consequences of a fallen world. And again, if really not for the grace of God, all of us would have been dead long ago. Diseases then are not a sign of God's judgment, but an opportunity for us to invite Him to save us to rescue us, to demonstrate His work and glory. And most importantly, let's not put God in a box and determine whether God can heal or should heal or will heal or not. Let's be clear that God's work is to heal. That is His nature. He reveals His divine nature as the God who heals. We really need to recognize He's a God not against us, but a God for us. He's not a God always looking for a small little nitty-gritty mistake and then come and zap us or scold us or punish us. No. He is our Father, the God who heals. So the two wrong boxes we often put ourselves in, or put God in, is number one, the consequence we expect is that my sin leads to my sickness. But that's not the right box. Jesus says neither this man nor his parents sin. And the second box that we wrongly put God in is that God punishes us for our sicknesses directly or that God shouldn't heal us or heal certain people on certain occasions. We tell God what He can do or cannot do. Let's not do that. Let's not tell God what he can do or cannot do. The truth of God's word tells us the opposite. We don't get what our sins deserve. We don't get what we, our sins deserve by the grace of God. And the God we didn't expect is that God himself will come and be our atonement. That he will take on our sickness, our curses, in order that we may receive that healing grace. That is the good news of the scripture. Let me close with this verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Let's read this verse together. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Let's read that again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. While we were sinners, enemies of God, deserving of death, Jesus came, God sent His own Son. And if in that situation, God sent His Son, how will He not, along with Him, now that we are children of God, how will He not, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? That is the heart of the Father. Come, let us pray. Lord, I want to pray once again, you renew our hearts and minds according to your word. Lord, we repent and we confess many times we have put you in a box, we have carried in our hearts a distorted image of who you are. We may even have attributed diseases to you or blame you or grumble against you. But in reality, God, you have always been sovereign and Lord, you know our situation. And God, you have revealed to us that you are Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. And so Father, I pray for myself and all of us that we will always recognize who you truly are so that as we continue with our Christian walk, we will have the courage and boldness to have the firm foundation that God, you are good. You are for us and not against us so that no matter what the circumstances may be, we will always have that sure and steadfast foundation and faith to believe you are good. So renew our minds once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.